welcome to the World Exposé podcast, where we delve into the past to better understand our global society through conversations with leading professors of history, political writers, international journalists, and more. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the World Exposé. I'm Matteo Crowley and co-host on the podcast. Joining us today is Amara Breckenridge of Frontier Economics, now one of the largest economic consultancies in Europe. Amara is part of Frontier's public policy practice and leads its work on international trade policy, while he was also previously an economist at the WTO. Today, Amara joins us to take stock of the current global trading system, delving into pre-pandemic trends, lasting changes as a result of the pandemic, and how sustainability and trade might coexist in the future. Amar, you're very welcome on the podcast. Well, thank you, uh, Matteo, and it's a pleasure to join you uh, today, and hello to our listeners as well. Um, so I'll just say a few words about myself and by way of introduction. Um, there's not a whole lot to add to what Matteo said. Um, I've worked on trade policy issues for uh, now coming on over 20 years. Um, in addition to working at Frontier and the World Trade Organization, I also worked for the government of uh, Uganda, uh, which also gave me first-hand experience of trade from the development side of things. Um, so yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you, Matteo, and uh, to tackle uh, some of these questions. And I uh, don't pretend that we'll do justice to them, but hopefully we can uh, give your listeners enough to reflect on uh, and, uh, and think about. Great. Thanks very much, Mark. So what I might start with is... Um I suppose to give our listeners a bit of a recap or a refresher on the direction of travel of global trade pre-COVID-19. You know, some will have known of the slowdown in global trade growth since approximately 2012. I was wondering if you could provide a, your view or synopsis on this slowdown that existed pre-pandemic and perhaps juxtapose it against the decades of high trade growth prior to that. Yeah, uh, thanks, Matteo. And I think your last... Uh uh, sentence captured that perfectly because when we talk about slowdown, it's compared to the very fast rates of growth we saw in international trade between roughly the mid 1980s and the mid 2000s. And what we especially noticed was that, uh, the rate, the annual rate of trade growth, that is year on year growth, largely outstripped, um, uh, year on year growth in GDP. And that was, an outlier historically. We've seen trade growth vary over, over decades and centuries, uh, particularly in relation to GDP growth. But the 1980s to 2000s was a standout period. And relative to that, the, the period after the global financial crisis and the immediate recovery following the global financial crisis, uh, essentially the second decade of, uh, of the 2000s saw a slower rate of growth in trade, um, at or below the rate of global GDP. Um, so you can think about this in a number of ways. Partly is simply to say, well, if the, if the 1980s to the early 2000s was a period of exceptional growth, maybe this is simply a reversion to the mean or something like it and a return to more normal, uh, rates of growth. Uh, that might be true in, in part, but it's not an entirely satisfactory explanation. Uh, one is that the, the impacts of the global financial crisis did linger for quite some time. And that was particularly true in the Eurozone, where growth is sluggish 
uh, over the second decade uh, of the 2000s following the global financial crisis, um, mainly due to uh, the combination of uh, fiscal sustainability issues and austerity measures. Intra-EU trade, you must remember, accounts for about a third of world trade, so slowing growth in the Eurozone is going to drag down global trade generally. Um, you know, the fast growth between the mid-80s and the 2000s was also driven by China's takeoff, if you like, uh, both in trade and economic terms. And I guess in recent years, we've seen a moderation of that, uh, which again is expected um, once countries grow fast as part of their convergence uh, towards, um, towards higher levels of income. You'd expect growth rates, both in GDP and trade, to slow down to some extent. And I think also, what, and this will be an important lead into, I think, the next bits of our discussion, uh, protectionism, I think, also did play a role uh, in slowing growth after the global financial crisis. That's not a consensus view across uh, economists, but I think it is, there are compelling reasons to think that's the case, uh, particularly if we broaden the definition of protectionism uh, to go beyond tariffs and and border measures to look at other sorts of intervention, regulatory interventions, subsidies for domestic production, which are quite prominent in, in large industrialized countries, um, discriminatory approaches to government procurement. Uh, all those increased quite rapidly. Those forms of intervention increased quite rapidly in the post-GFC environment. And uh, I'm convinced played a role in slowing the growth of global trade. Yeah, a very interesting perspective. And I suppose, looking at the slowdown trend since approximately 2012, what do you think were the contributions of the Brexit and Trump votes and maybe separately the populist backlash from certain quarters of the West? Would you see them more as a symptom or as a cause? I mean, I think, uh, you know, both the Brexit and and, uh, Donald Trump's election in 2016 uh, were momentous events because they captured a swing in political sentiment. Uh, that had its underpinnings in economic issues, mainly distributional ones, and that was particularly evident in in the U.S. election, uh, to some extent in Brexit as well. Uh, you know, concerns that the distributions of of the gains from trade were were not happening happening in a uh, in an equitable way, and a backlash against trade and and technolo- technological progress. Uh, at the same time, I don't think either Brexit or Trump had. Uh, a very profound effect on the growth of world trade. If you look at charts of merchandise trade, you don't see a particular blip after 2016. Uh, and in fact, in, in the case of Brexit, Brexit only came into full force this year. Uh, and there you did see some temporary shocks, at least, to, to UK exports and EU exports to the UK. How that plays out in the long run still remains to be seen. Um, so... Um, in terms of our original question around surrounding you know, broad, uh, broadly observed trends in trade growth over many years, I'm not sure there's a you can detect a, a direct influence. What we can say though is that, um, uh, particularly the impact of Donald Trump on on the global trading system might have created long-term issues which can have a, a negative impact on international trade and the instability to trade rules. Uh, a kind of a proliferation of protection, uh, protectionism and, um, you know, the, 
the stimming of the WTO's dispute settlement system, all those could, over time, uh, have a negative effect on international trade. But those still line the future. And obviously now that Trump is out of office, could to some extent extent be reversed as well. Yeah, that makes sense. And just finally, before we move on to the impact of COVID-19 itself on global trade, I'd just like to touch on China. Obviously, a lot of people know now it's a trading superpower. And some people often speak about how the 19th century, during the 19th century, globalization and trade largely took place within European empires, whereas in the 20th century, it was more so through U.S. or U.S.-supported institutions. Regardless of whether that's right or wrong, do you think the 21st century is increasingly a period where globalization trade is going to take place primarily through China-backed institutions, such as the BRI, for example? Well, so, I mean, just to uh, build on your original point about the history of, of trade institutions, so you're right, and it was really the influence of Wilson and then Roosevelt uh, that uh, and, and the ideas of intellectual that John, like John Maynard Keynes, that gave an impetus to multilateralism as we know it, uh, and such, such cherished notions as most favoured nation or national treatment, which was a response to uh, the imperial system of trade. And uh, uh, you, you probably remember that Winston Churchill was was fervently opposed uh, to Roosevelt's ideas on this. I think he famously said that although you know his his, uh, his debt of gratitude to Roosevelt would require him to kiss Roosevelt on two cheeks. He was damned if he'd have to kiss Roosevelt on all four. But um, uh, in the end, Roosevelt's ideas prevailed, and you have the system of multilateralism, which the UK was very reticent to embrace. And in, interestingly now, the US's disenchantment with multilateralism um, come for a time when you have another emerging trading power becoming the new trading superpower. And uh, in a sense, there's a parallel between the US's disenchantment and multilateralism and, and, and the UK, both you know, in their period of decline. Uh, paradoxically, because when you're declining in power, it's probably when you need multilateral rules. But that, that's, I guess, a, a long way of saying that China still has an interest in multilateralism. Um, and the you know China's growth as a trading superpower can be traced back to its decision to try and to join the, the General Agreement on Trade and Trade, the GATT as it then was, which took uh, nearly two decades. But as part of that process, China did undergo a number of reforms internally and in, in terms of its trade policy, and associated with that, it emerged over the course of the last three decades from being a marginal trade, relatively marginal trading partner to, to, to the, the world's dominant, um, exporter of goods. Um, I think, um, it's, you know, it's true that China's, uh, growth in trade has probably peaked, but it still remains very much, uh, at the center of global value chains. And so it requires a global, an open global trading system because a lot of its exports actually rely on imports, whether of raw materials or of ideas from other countries. And so it's sort of become this assembly factory um, uh, st- so platform but that relies on, 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 on open trade. Um, the Belt and Road Initiative is probably you know, obviously political 
geopolitical interest in that, but it's driven by a commercial recognition that you need that connectivity. But it's not a substitute for, uh, for strong multilateral rules because, um, uh, as, as big as China is, it will, it will come to the same conclusion as the US did, uh, in the post-war period that it is simply not efficient to try and police openness, even if to one's own interest. Uh, on, on an individual basis, but it's better to rely on a, on a globally cooperative approach based on, on common rules. And that, that was the approach the US took. Uh, and it's, you can, you know, when you look back at the launch of the Uruguay round, um, the US was at the forefront of that, partly because it wanted to quell domestic protectionist measures. Uh, now I don't quite see that appetite in China at the moment uh, for for multilateralism in that sense, in terms of driving forward negotiations, uh, it's probably fair to say that China at this stage tries to pick trade partners off individually. So there is that difference. But I think overall, you know, underpinning even that approach is an assumption that there's a baseline that's provided by workable multilateral rules in, in which China has a, has a deep stake. Moving on to then the impact of COVID-19 itself on global trade and I suppose what's here to stay. I'd like to know your perspective on what you see as the lasting impact on global trade due to say business closures and, and during the pandemic border closures and restrictions. And as a corollary to this, what would you see as the key changes that are here to stay as a result? Mm-hmm. So I mean you can think in terms of specific sectors and you can think of you know economies as a whole. I mean, it was clear that the immediate impact of the pandemic and the, the mitigation measures that were put in place led to a steep decline in world trade. Uh, but that, uh, that decline actually turned out, uh, was nowhere near as bad as expected. I think the WTO forecast around a 10% drop over 2020, uh, global trade fell by about five, about five and a half percent. Uh, partly because governments did take remedial measures to stimulate their economies and, and sort of uh, to keep things going. Um, I, I mean, I you can sort of break down the, the consequences of the pandemic into, uh, into sort of isolated issues or specific issues, uh, and also in terms of sectoral issues and then more broad-based issues. So specific issues include, for example, the, the appetite that people suddenly discovered over last year for export restrictions. Um, not just in vaccines, but also in food, uh, which is a revival of an old form of beggar thy neighbor, uh, uh, attitude that, you know, undermined global trade between the wars. So that, that is something to look out for. And, and rules and export restrictions on the, on the WTO are, are substantially weaker than they are on import restrictions. And that's something to look out for. You have the ongoing debate around vaccines, both in terms of intellectual property. Uh, but also other issues regarding trade facilitation, and that that's cast a spotlight on that. And I think the debate around intellectual property, uh, which in relation to healthcare was already uh, in evidence um, two decades ago, uh, has now been reinvigorated, and that, that's there to stay. So you have those sort of changes. I think the more broad-based changes, though, that I think the big thing to look out for now is that uh, the pandemic, if you like, has uh, has has increased everyone's appetite for a more activist form of industrial policy. 
you know, depend, regardless of how that is capped, whether it's some sort of recovery or build back better. Um, there's, an, there's an appetite for government intervention that uh, uh, most Western um, market uh, or countries have, have rediscovered to some extent, um, which is a bit ironic because it does come at a time when these Western countries were trying to crack down on activism in China and uh, and uh, and East Asia on on industrial policy. Um, so that's that's something to look out for because it can lead to things like competitive industrial policy, competitive subsidisation, um, which um, you know has the, has has the potential to to lead to, to bad effects uh, both in terms of international trade rules and uh, and international trade. Um, and then finally, I think I guess you know the big question that's been raised. And I think we'll probably talk about this later. Is that, you know the focus on resilience. Um, essentially, if you look at what what economists fretted about in the 80s, 90s, and the early 2000s was, um, uh, you know, the questions of efficiency and growth. And then, you know, the, with the global financial crisis and then with the rise of populism, uh, distributional issues and equity you know, gain prominence in relation to international trade and its effects. Um, and now, uh, the question of resilience, how do you build, um, economies, but also international trading systems that are resilient to external shocks like, like COVID? Uh, and that takes place, I guess, against the backdrop that we're anticipating more shocks to, to both to economies and trade via climate effects and so forth, you know, things that you can see coming down, down the track. Uh, and which might actually have a greater magnitude in terms of their impact than, than COVID has. Um, and then I guess at the sectoral level, yeah, clearly there are, there are questions there. Uh, you know, sort of travel and, uh, travel industry has obviously been hit and, and now there's a question as to how that will re-emerge with, you know, people having discovered the, the virtues of remote working. Um, uh, and that goes hand in hand with the digitalization of trade, uh, including the development of new technologies such as 3D printing um, and, uh, and other forms of, uh, of connectivity and connectivity-based production. Absolutely. And, and I know you touched on it there, but on, on that topic of resilience, in your opinion, what, what would you say are the key priorities going forward for, whether it's for, for companies and states, I know there's been a lot of focus on supply chain management, diversification, maybe even shortening of supply chains. A good example of recent with the Suez, Suez Canal, and but also, you know, I, I know that the European Union are also talking about this concept of strategic autonomy and then the sustainability question, which we'll discuss a bit later. I suppose I'd love to know your opinion on what you see as the key priorities going forward on that resilience point. I think there are two aspects of resilience. One is resilience of trade and systems of production. Uh, and the other one is the resilience of governance and rules around them. And I think both are, 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 are live issues. In terms of, um, trade production systems, resilience, I guess, is, can be defined as the ability of the system to adapt to shocks and recover from them. And that, uh, uh, uh Degree of adaptiveness is hampered if, um, if you have 
supply chains or interlinkages that that have pinch points. So, so for example, the virus first broke out in Wuhan. It happens that a very large number of international corporations have important operations in Wuhan as well. Uh, you cited the Suez Canal example. So the question is, how do you build a system which has fewer nodes, which if they collapse, are, are going to cause a systemic effect? And as an instinctive reaction, I think, as a result of the pandemic, to say, okay, we need to reshore production. And I think that dovetailed with the narrative that had been spun over the last 15 years that, you know, there are, uh, there are certain adverse effects of trade that are, that are related to, um, you know, loss of jobs in certain sectors and to try and repatriate those. So that, you know, that, that, that focus on resili- resilience came into, you know, was developed against a hinterland. Uh, of, of discussions about reshoring. However, I don't think reshoring itself is an intuitive response to resilience because if you're locating more of your production at home, you're just going to be more vulnerable to a shock that's specific to, to yourself as opposed to a global shock. So you might be changing the nature of your vulnerability, but you may not necessarily be reducing vulnerability. Um, there might be a greater focus on, on regional value chains as opposed to global ones, the regionalization of those value chains. And, uh, that, that could also be driven by natural factors of increasing labor costs in China, for example, might make that, you know, to China less profitable. Um, and, um, it, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's difficult to implement resilience across trade as a whole. I mean, you can think in very very specific sectors such as uh, energy systems where within countries you have built-in resilience because of, of, of technical needs. It's difficult to find a parallel international trade. You can't, sort of, you can't commandeer sort of spare capacity uh, for factories that then lie idle uh, for, uh, for years on end. Uh, it may be that, com- that companies within their own planning factor in more redundancy but that, that's driven by commercial imperatives rather than policy. Uh, in terms of policy, resi- uh, in terms of resilience that's driven by policy, um, I suppose uh, you know, countries will look to diversify their exports, which has been obviously a long-standing concern of poorer countries. Um, they, in the case of China, it might focus the attention a bit more on looking at domestic sources of growth rather than external ones which is the process that was happening in China anyway. So that's, uh, you know, there's no hard and fast answer on how to develop resilience. I think the key, though, is to try and find ways of developing resilience that don't involve protectionism, because I don't think protectionism in itself will improve resilience. I'll just, I think it just shifts the locus of vulnerability. Um, then I guess the other aspect of resilience is the resilience of the rules. So whenever there are shocks, the the robustness of rules gets tested. Uh, shocks themselves can actually lead to the development of rules. So the oil shocks of the, the 70s and early 80s led to an upswing in protectionism that then gave an impetus to negotiate new trade rules. Um, as I said, that that what people call the old GATT magic hasn't materialized again. So you can't, you don't have people going around calling for new trade negotiations to contain that. Uh, but I think the resilience of Rules is important because economic resilience is is dependent on there being a system of rules that are that's enforceable 
uh, and that gives predictability to the economic relationships between countries and especially that prevent you know, sudden policy changes, be that you know, the whim of, uh, of, sort of populist, uh, of an upsurge in popular sentiment or something that looks uh, electorally opportunistic. And you know, having those rules in place can, can contain the damage from, from those sorts of, uh, of developments. And lastly, um, I suppose the, for the next few questions, I'd like to talk a little bit about sustainability and trade and how they might be intertwined going forward. I'm conscious that it somewhat goes hand in hand with this resilience question to an extent. So after having read an article, of an interview with yourself and Matthew Bell also from Frontier Economics, I was particularly interested in the piece around this need to properly evaluate the environmental impact when considering gains from trade as well as the challenges in doing so. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I guess that point just simply touches on the fact that there are um, uh, there are costs and benefits from economic activities that are not captured by, by markets. So the degradation of environmental assets usually isn't valued and captured in national accounts. So when you're measuring, say, the, the effects of trade liberalization on GDP growth, those effects might be missing, and so you're overstating the gains and you might be understating the costs. Um, so that's, uh, you know, that, 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 I guess at a very basic level, that's some, something that, that needs to be checked on. So similarly, you, know, you can have very rapid trade growth, but that's associated with a you know, high level of carbon emissions. That's not desirable either from a local or a global point of view. Those, those aspects need to be captured. I don't think the relationship between trade uh, and sustainability is, is, is fundamentally an antagonistic one. In fact, there are a number of ways in which trade does contribute to sustainability, partly by the diffusion of technology, for example, in, in goods and services that are required to deliver environmental outcomes. If you're, if you're trying to move uh, your power system from a, a high-emissions coal-based system to to, to renewables, you need the technology to do that, and it'll be very often it'll be efficient to import that and and the know-how that's required to to implement those. So, um, you know, there's that there's that aspect. Uh, it's also important to bear in mind that historically protectionism has been associated associated with devastating uh, environmental impacts as well as so, you know, inefficient industries that pollute a lot. So, it's not necessarily a conflictual uh, relationship, uh, but it's, it's one where um, the tensions need to be identified and need to be properly measured, and they usually turn around the fact that environmental assets are not valued uh, and their degradation is not valued when it comes to measuring the effects of productive activities or consumption decisions. Yeah, and you touched there on the, this tension, and I suppose that there's another piece in the article that I was particularly interested in either Matthew or yourself spoke about the tension between, for a lot of states, being seen to support free trade, but also reaching climate targets. Um, I was wondering if you could shed some light on some of the challenges states are facing in that area at the moment. Yeah, again, so the relationship is not necessarily, uh, by any means, conflictual. Uh, in fact, uh, the architecture of international climate treaties borrows very heavily on trade concepts, the idea that... Um, uh, you know, you have a global um, 
public good, which is the stabilization of greenhouse gases that you need to achieve. And you do this by, by trying to generate uh, abatement at, at lowest cost. Um, the, the tensions come again from the fact that you will have dirty industries whose em- emissions are not priced and therefore, uh, you know, more exports of that adds to more emissions uh, and, pro- and possibly displaces cleaner activities. So that's, that's, that's the point of tension. Recently, what we've seen is the fact that countries that now increasingly have legally binding targets uh, set at home, which they're required by law to meet, uh, are worried about the fact that um, you know, their their pursuant pursual of these targets and taking measures, for example, pricing emissions, phasing out dirty industries, uh, will be hampered. Uh, by the fact that countries that don't have these targets or have less stringent versions of, of these will, uh, will simply, uh, capture those dirty activities and, uh, and do the emissions that would, that were done originally in the richer countries that are implementing these measures, uh, and take the jobs also that were associated with them. So that's the question of carbon leakage. Um, and that's, that's probably the main point of antagonism between, um, between trade and climate. And I guess that issue has led uh, various governments to contemplate measures that could be trade restricting, including the imposition of duties on countries that don't adopt emissions targets, for example. Um, So that that, that's an example of of, of a point of tension. But I don't think there are that the, the, the relationship between climate change and trade is inescapably conflictual. Uh, And I think to the contrary, I think you need trade to help achieve climate goals because you simply need to be able to have that diffusion of technology, know-how, uh, and, and, and the diffusion of technology and know-how all, is always embodied in, in, in goods and services and, and investment. Yeah, I think overall it's positive to hear that um, you know, the two don't necessarily have to be conflictual. And I suppose it's something you touch on also in that article and um, I suppose my next question would be, and maybe final question is, um, you speak a little bit in the article about some existing initiatives that you think are maybe not paving the way, but definitely show that, as you said, the relationship doesn't have to be, um, one or the other, but, but both can be progressed. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about those and perhaps if you have any views or insights yourself on other, other areas where, um, you know, that can be capitalized on. Yeah. So you, you have a number of different initiatives. I guess what we've seen over recent years is that free trade agreements between pairs of countries or sets of countries have started incorporating commitments on the environment and on sustainability issues. Uh, so the EU UK trade and cooperation agreement is probably the most prominent example of that. Because it, uh, as part of the EU's broader concerns about the level, le- about level playing fields, um, the, the agreement incorporates another binding commitments on, uh, uh, you know, committing to disciplines on the multilateral environmental agreements, about carbon pricing, about, uh, sustainability and so forth, and makes, you know, overall market access conditional on, on respecting those. You don't find those elsewhere, but you do find Similar language at least can contain aspirational goals to, to having, uh, to countries, committing countries to, to implementing multilateral environmental agreements. And the thing is, if you, even if you, if the commitment to 
uh, a multilateral environment agreement is done in the, in the context of a bilateral free trade agreement. By definition, that mu- commitment to a multilateral instrument applies to everyone. Um, so, you know, the question is, can you use these uh, bilateral mechanisms in the absence of progress at the multilateral level as a, as a stepping stone to developing uh, a broader network of global arrangements? Uh, the main challenge to that is that the countries that are party to free trade agreements and that are willing to incorporate environment and sustainability provisions are likely to be ones that are already good performers there. Um, so they've already signaled the fact that they're doing well and they're not really taking on additional commitments uh, or they're not doing anything new that they haven't been doing. And the, the challenge is to draw in sort of more reluctant uh, parties into that. And I think generally the, uh, you know, other initiatives that need to be considered are issues that have to do with uh, the transfer of technology and access to technology. Um, uh, and that, uh, that touches on, on a host of issues, in, including intellectual property, for example. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, initiatives to support that, initiatives to support R&D at a global level, uh, are, are required. By analogy, if you, if you think back to the post-war period, what, uh, what helped a lot in dealing with the with problems of hunger and, and poverty was the Green Revolution, which is a network of, of global R&D uh, centers focused on agriculture. You could argue that you need a sort of uh, similar sort of green, green revolution network for what are now called green issues, so climate change and environment is a, an, uh, you know, a much bigger commitment to, uh, to public research and development, which uh, would have the benefit um, of helping uh, poor countries implement measures that favor the environment, but then also help them to take on commitments to do so. And in that case, you know, and doing so will take some of the poison out of the system, uh, which comes from having this differentiated level of commitments between some countries and the other, and which causes countries that pursue more stringent targets to feel that they're constantly being undercut by those that are refusing to do so. Very, very insightful. Thanks, Amar. Um, we could probably have another podcast or several podcasts on this mm-hmm. topic, uh, but we'll wrap this one up there. Uh, I'd like to thank you very much for providing our listeners with incredibly yeah, useful you. insights and uh, into, into global trade, and really enjoyed having you on the, on the podcast, and appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks for listening. If you liked it, tell your friends about it and maybe give us a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts. See you next week.